Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy is an educational and entertainment podcast created and produced by Anna Zarov and Olivia Horrigan. If you would like to know more about our show, check out our website at mythvsmedpod.com and join our email list. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Now let's get on to the episode. Ever wonder what the first day being a doctor is like? Find out on this week's episode of Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy. I'm Anna. And I'm Olivia. And we're medical students at the University of Michigan. Join us as we unpack the first episode of one of our favorite medical dramas, Grey's Anatomy. It's a beautiful day to learn what is myth and what is medicine. Disclaimer. Our thoughts and opinions may not reflect those of the University of Michigan hospital system or the University of Michigan Medical School and are not intended to be used in place of medical advice. They're currently in training and are not qualified to provide medical advice. Please consult your doctor for medical management or further questions. All right, let's get into our first episode. Olivia, do you want to give us a summary of episode one of Grey's Anatomy? Sure. So this episode starts with opening on a woman who we later learn to be Meredith, who's late for her first day as an intern at Seattle Grace Hospital, and her one night stand with a man that's unknown that we'll later discover is a hotshot neurosurgeon at the hospital. So this episode goes over the first 48 hour shift of the new Seattle Grace Hospital interns. So Meredith Gray, Christina Yang, George O'Malley, Isabel Stevens, and Alex Karev as they split off to do different tasks assigned to them by their new chief resident, Miranda Bailey, after receiving her rules, of course. So during their first shift, Meredith is working with a patient who is having seizures of unknown origin and Alex, who disregards a patient with post-op fever. At the end of the episode, these interns realize that being a surgeon is not as easy or fun as they thought it would be. Thank you, Olivia, for that summary. We are now going to get started with our quick catches, which is how we're planning to start off every episode. And during this time, we're going to go through and share just little medical details and also medical myths that we found throughout the episode. Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of the episodes, just because we just get to talk about every little thing that we see and we say oh that's right or oh that's not right like what is happening this is bizarre all right do you want to get started with one yeah so my first one starts out right at the beginning of the episode which is you know we see Meredith waking up from her one night stand she's hungover she's a mess she's late for work and I would like to just talk about the fact that this woman is a first year surgical resident also known as an intern and she went out and partied and had a one-night stand literally right before their first day of residency. I know. And I'm isn't just it like, insane? Like, in what world? Can you imagine? Like, I, I feel would... like especially surgical residents, they're getting started. It is their first day. They are taking this seriously. It is a high, high-stress situation. I cannot imagine walking in my first day saying, oh, yeah, I was out till 3 in the morning last night. So, yeah, that would never well, happen. And in the stairwell scene where she's talking to Derek about it, she literally is like, I was the one who was so drunk. Okay, I was the one who was drunk, and you are not that good looking. Like, Meredith, excuse me, what are you doing? You're about to start residency. (sighs) Not a good look, Meredith. Not a good look. No. The other one that I feel like this is just a classic speech in this show. It's Weber's speech when they all first get to the hospital and they walk into this OR and he says something to the point of, by the time we get through this program, eight of you will switch specialties, five of you will crack under the pressure, and two of you will be asked to leave. Say hello to your competition. Eight of you will switch to an easier specialty. Five of you will crack under the pressure. Two of you will be asked to leave. That would never, I've never heard of that. I'm like, what kind of residency is this? And I don't know. I realized that the show was filmed, what, 20 years ago now? Yeah. But still, 
okay, a couple things about this. First of all, there are supposedly 20 people in their surgical residency program, which is a huge surgical residency program. What do you think the average surgical residency program is? Gosh, maybe Maybe like five to eight. Yeah. General general surgery, maybe tops 10. Yeah. That's a huge program. And then what? You're just going to go through residency and then at the end they're going to be like, nope, you're not good enough. You're out. It's just crazy to think about. That doesn't happen. Like once you match into residency, you're in that residency program. Like unless you choose to leave or like do something insanely awful. Yeah. I don't understand what that speech was about, but it really did get him pumped up though. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he knows what he's doing. He's been around the block a few times. (laughs) Well, also on the topic of that, something interesting that I noticed was, I think Meredith says at some point that there are only six women out of 20 in their class, Mm -hmm. which definitely resonates as just women being underrepresented in medicine. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that these days, like our med school class has what, 70% women? Yeah, it's very heavily women oriented, but surgical programs especially they're really wanting to get women involved in their surgery programs because there's just not enough of them. So I actually did some research into this because I was super interested in kind of the trends that we were seeing in terms of women in surgery. So I actually looked at graduating medical school classes and kind of the percent that women made up of those classes at a national average. So the 1980-1981 class, only 24.9% were women. Jumped to 1990 to 1991, 36% were women. Then in 2000-2001 class, it was 43.2%. 2010 to 2011 class was 48.4%. And then 2018-2019 was 47.9%. Um, and so you definitely see this uptick in both women in medicine and then women um, actually graduating medical school as well. And so to take a step further and look nationally at the total number of women in general surgery residencies... Looks like it has increased from a total number of 1,612 women in 1997, so that was 20.5% of the total general surgery residents, and now in 2020, we have 4,317 total women in general surgery residencies, which is 44.8% of the total. So that is reflective of the medical school graduation rates and that much more women are also going into surgery. So it looks like the general recruiting for women in surgery has worked. Yeah. And I mean, this was 20 years ago, but it's still kind of sad, like six out of 20, not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And then the other just funny thing about that is the fact that we really never see any of the other interns in this class. (laughs) Just these five that we focus on. I know. Well, I'm like, that's fair. Like we're focusing on the characters, but like latched on to that six woman thing. And I was looking, I'm like, where are these other women? Oh, and also of the six women, three of them are with one chief. Like mm-hmm. Meredith, Christine, if Meredith, Christina and Izzy are three of the six women in the class, they're like, yeah, let's put all of them with this yeah. one resident. And then in the scene where George is doing the appy and all the interns are in the gallery, mm-hmm. there's not a single other woman there no. other than no. Meredith, Christina and Izzy. So I feel like they get that point across there and they say, oh, if you forgot, there's there's only six women in this program. So you're not going to see any more show up for this happy that that George is doing. Apparently not. So one of my favorite parts of this episode is actually how Bailey delegates tasks to the different interns. And Izzy is given the task of doing DREs or digital rectal exams. So normally you only use one finger to do the exam. And all throughout the episode, Izzy is shown 
holding two fingers up and putting lube on two fingers. This is referenced again and again in the episode, but that is not how we do DRE. No, they make it very clear when they teach you to do a DRE. One finger only. We are not trying to put people in any more discomfort than they need to be. Yeah. So I just thought that was super interesting. And you can definitely see with all of the tests that they are given that all the interns are just doing grunt work basically. It also is so funny because is it really a surgical intern's job to be like, go do all the DREs in the hospital? She goes, I did 17 rectal exams. Uh, There are definitely not 17 patients on your service that are in need of a rectal exam. I can tell you that much. Like in like an actual hospital structure, it's not, it's just like, okay, we have all these different jobs that need to get done in the hospital. For example, Mm -hmm. a rectal exam. And we're going to just have one person go throughout the hospital and do all the rectal exams. That's just not how it works. I think it's also important to bring up how the structure of the teams and how the hospital runs is not actually accurate a lot of the times in this show. Because a lot of times you see these interns running from patient to patient doing different tasks. But in reality, you really have a set amount of patients and you just do the work on those patients. You don't really go flitting around to other services to do things. I think it's mostly for the show's broad diagnoses that they want to showcase. But in reality, you really just focus on your patients that you have. Yeah, the surgical interns in this show literally do every single job that there is to be done in the hospital. That's just not what happens. In real life, you're doing tasks that are specific to the specialty that you went into. So if you're a surgical resident, you're working with surgical patients. And not everything you do is surgery necessarily. But the patients that you're working with are surgical patients and you're working on a surgical team. You're not taking every trauma that comes into the ER. And interns do so many tasks that you would never see. One of the things that I picked up was at the beginning of the episode, when they're trying to figure out what's wrong with Katie, this girl who's having a seizure, Mm -hmm. they're like, Meredith, take her to CT. And Meredith's running around the hospital getting lost, trying to take this patient to (laughs) CT. And in what world would they ask a surgical intern to take a patient to CT. On their first day. On their first day. I guess it maybe depends on the institution. I guess we can say coming from a large hospital and we have a whole transport team that takes patients to test Mm -hmm. and takes patients anywhere they need to go. Seattle Grace is supposed to be an enormous hospital. It's supposed to be this big deal hospital. They don't have a transport team. They're just not going to waste a surgical intern's time. It's just not a good use of anyone's time or money. Exactly. Speaking of work, I like to talk about their break times that they have because they all just seem to scatter throughout the hospital and land in different places during their breaks. They're always in the basement or in some weird location, but a lot of times we have call rooms and team rooms that we kind of sit in. Um, And then lunch, I just want to talk about the lunchtime scene. Yes! Oh my god, how did they do that? Dude, the lunchtime scene cracks me up because they're all eating together in the cafeteria at the same time. An extended period of time. This this never, ever, ever ever happens. Everyone gets their lunch whenever they possibly can. And so to have everyone on the same team in the same room for at least five minutes is kind of a miracle. (laughs) No, actually, it is wild that they are like all taking a break. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're all taking a break at once? Who's seeing your patients? Exactly. What is up? Uh, Well, and this might also be just a product of the fact that in this episode, they're working a 48-hour shift, which Mm -hmm. is something that just doesn't happen anymore. It used to be a real thing, especially for interns getting started. They're going to work these really long 48-plus hour shifts. Yeah, I know. When the ACGME, or the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, decided to cut those 48-hour shifts, a lot of things changed. Yeah, so maybe it is possible that they have longer breaks since they're working 48 hours, but even so, the fact that all of them would be off at once is kind of bizarre. Another cool thing was in Derek's surgery at the end that Meredith gets to scrub in for, I had the timestamp 3838. 
I just thought it was so funny watching everybody in this surgery because something very important in any surgery is keeping a sterile field. And this is something that surgeons take so seriously. Mm-hmm. Where you're allowed to put your hands, making sure you're gowned and gloved properly. At some point, I'm sure we'll like go a little bit in more depth about what it looks like to scrub in and to be mm-hmm. in a sterile field. But in this scene, Meredith is not gloved and her hands are in a sterile field. Oh my god, there are like, nuts! Yeah, and then there are two people who aren't even scrubbed. And normally, if you're not scrubbed in, you should be at least a foot away from the sterile field. At least. Yeah, to make sure that you're not going to contaminate anything. And there were two people in this room who were not even scrubbed in and practically touching the sterile field. I know! Meredith was literally leaning over the patient's head, which was open for the brain aneurysm repair. Like, ungloved. No gloves on her hands. Yeah, leaning over, looking into the microscope. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Fresh out of lunch. Let me just stick my bare hand into your brain. Yes, great idea. Great idea, Meredith. And and Derek. (laughs) Which, also, let's talk about the attendings in this episode, because while residents had to work 48-hour shifts, it's not common for attendings to also work those same 48-hour shifts. Oh, definitely not. Yeah, attendings do their own thing and they go home. Maybe they're on call, but they're definitely not in the hospital for this amount of time with the residents. So it was just very interesting. Yeah, even for an attending who's on service, meaning they are working in the hospital and could be on call at any point if they need to be called in and they aren't in the hospital, those attendings don't show up until right before their first surgery starts. As a med student and for the residents, we would, for surgery, get to the hospital between, you know, 4 and 5.30 a.m. and then go round on all of our patients. And there's not an attending there for that. And I think mm-hmm. that maybe at some places there might be. Normally, like on any service, attending show up right before they need to be there once you're attending you've served your time you are gonna get to have a little bit more flexible hours yeah they're having their coffee in the morning they're taking their stroll they're eating their breakfast so it's just much different I think the attending and resident relationships throughout this entire show are just really interesting to see because obviously we've been in the the hospital ourselves and so we see that dichotomy and it's just interesting to see how they portray it on TV. (laughs) On that note, do we want to get into the ethical just chaos that is Derek and Meredith's relationship in this episode? Yes, please. Okay, yes. When they slept together, they did not know what their professional relationship was going to be. Happens. Well, does it? I don't know. Maybe. But whatever. But then there's this whole scene in the stairwell where Derek is very blatantly just coming on to Meredith and Meredith is literally like, you're my attending. This is inappropriate. And he's just like, but please. And she's like, no, stop talking to me. And like, we love Meredith and Derek. I don't want to shit on Meredith and Derek. We love them. It's so hard for me, but let's be honest. This was sexual harassment. This was not okay. This was not okay. Like, was it even borderline? He was literally like, sleep with me. I'm going to do stuff because you slept with me. If you heard about an attending doing this in the hospital... Oh, it would be game over. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, immediately reported. And I guess it is also a little bit of a different time. I mean, Meredith says point blank, this is sexual harassment. Oh, and Derek's no. like, Derek's like, but I like you. And we're like, we're like but that doesn't excuse and we're anything. Like, and I, think, I think it's also so crazy because Meredith is the one with the head in her shoulders. She's like, you're my attending. I'm your intern. I work for you. You're my boss. This can't be allowed. And he's like, but I don't see the problem. And <laughs> and it's not like this is something that is exclusive to medicine. Like in any workplace, if your boss starts being like, hey, 
let's get together it's exactly like, it. it just wouldn't it wouldn't fly at all yeah, yeah that's a, a huge ethical dilemma in this episode but we love meredith and Derek. yeah and we're, and we're gonna see it come back time and time again spoiler if you haven't seen the show but if you haven't seen the show you better go watch it before you get into this you're gonna that's get true. a whole lot that's true but yeah huge ethical dilemma that we'll see time and again but i think one of the main ethical scenarios that we get into in this episode that again we see repeatedly throughout the whole series is patient confidentiality in public and really what it means to protect patient information in the hospital. So one of the first things they ever teach you when you go into medicine or any kind of field that has patient care is that you are not supposed to be discussing in any public locations any protected health information so that patient age patient diagnoses patient anything and so in this episode we just see it time and time again where they're having conversations about patients in the elevators in the cafeteria i mean literally any place that is public that's such a good point i mean i i guess that makes sense in the terms of it's a tv show but it's such a good point i didn't even think about that mm-hmm. i mean hipaa violations up the wazoo i mean it's all <laughs> it's all over the place yeah well and it's interesting i actually was just talking to an attending recently in our team room and he had a really interesting perspective on it because he was telling me that before HIPAA was enacted which was in 1996 that he actually felt like in the discussion of patients between healthcare professionals that we humanized patients a lot better but just because Mm -hmm. they were able to put a name to the person they're talking about instead of just being like oh how's your appy how's your wart guy I mean that makes sense how's your butt pus guy because you can't refer to anything that would give away who this person is you really have to protect their patient information and Mm so I think that this is the right call Mm -hmm. but also there's the solution to that that's just you know talk about them in a team room in a like in the designated places (laughs) yeah not in the elevator or cafeteria it's actually crazy because we have signs about this in our elevators at Michigan Medicine Hospitals so in almost every elevator that I've been in in the hospital there's a sign there that says do not talk about patient information in the elevator all right does that touch on our patient confidentiality and public subject i think it does i did have another ethical dilemma it happened at the end of the episode so george was taking care of a patient who needed surgery and the wife was really worried and asked him you know is he going to be okay is he going to make it through this and george is like oh dr burke's great don't worry about it but the wife was just really concerned and kept prodding George, are you sure he's going to be okay? And George said, I promise. And that's a big no-no in the medical field. Oh, yeah. I have heard many a time that you do not say I promise to anyone because, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen, especially for someone who's undergoing a really big heart surgery. If you're undergoing open heart surgery, that feels like a really bad place to make that kind of promise. Exactly. And yes, he was a first day intern. And yes, maybe he didn't know any better. But it's not like he's never been in a hospital, went through med school. He's interacted with patients before. Exactly. I don't know. Well, I just think adding insult to injury for George is that after Dr. Burke hears that he has promised the patient's family that he'll be fine, but he actually passed away in the surgery, that Dr. Burke says, all right, George, you promised them that he would get through this, so you have to go tell him that he didn't make it. And all right, this is wrong on multiple levels because one, as a first day intern, I understand you wanting to teach George a lesson and say, you have to go notify this family. But he would never do it alone because he wasn't the surgeon performing That's what I was going to say. I sort of get it. It's a logical punishment. You made this promise. Mm -hmm. Now you need to tell them that it's broken. Mm -hmm. But Burke needed to at least be there. 
Because he was the surgeon. He was performing it. George wasn't even in the room. Normally, if you go in, I mean, obviously a family's going to need time to mourn, but they're also going to have questions. Like you tell them your loved one died in surgery. The surgeon who performed the surgery needs to be there to be able to answer questions. And for him to just not even show is very unprofessional. I know. I thought it was so crazy. The even more crazy part is that George went and notified this family in the middle of a waiting room or a public space where there were multiple other people there just surrounding them. This would never happen whenever a family member dies or even after a surgery. The surgeon brings back the family or the loved ones into what we call a consultant room, and they basically go and sit down with them and tell them how the surgery went. It's never done in a public space like this. Talk about a HIPAA violation. Yeah, right? Oh, my gosh. And yeah, there was just so much wrong with that interaction and George just leaving and being completely distraught. You could see it on his face. I mean, I think he was scarred. Well, and the family was devastated, obviously, Mm -hmm. and that's just such a like unfair position to put them into to give them this news in such a public place i have to imagine that would just contribute to even greater trauma around the well yeah so it was just sad to see that it was handled that way obviously this does not happen like that in real life thankfully but yeah it is interesting to think about in real life though what doctors are willing to promise and what they aren't because it does seem like generally the rule is you shouldn't promise anything but there definitely are certain situations where doctors seem to be sure enough that they do make promises Mm -hmm. and like I feel like for me as a med student just knowing less than they do at that point it always makes me so nervous I don't know like have you ever seen like an attending promise patients things I actually did see this in one instance it was actually when I was on my obstetrics and gynecology rotation my OB-GYN rotation and the mom was fine but the baby wasn't doing great and they had to take the baby to the NICU or like an intensive care unit and so obviously mom was really worried and was asking if baby was going to be okay and normally in that circumstance what I've heard other doctors say is you know we're going to do everything we can they're in the right hands they're in the right place Um, but this doctor just said you know I promise I promise he won't die Um, and so I was very taken aback and I just I had never experienced a doctor actually promise anything before, so it was really interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, it's a fine line between wanting to reassure patients when you really are 99.9% positive that they're fine. Yeah. I mean, half these doctors have been in the field for so long and they've seen so many things. Now, what I will say is George was not one of these doctors who has years and years of experience. In fact, it was his first day as a doctor. Very true. So (laughs) he probably shouldn't have been going around making promises. I agree with that. (laughs) There's a time and a place, maybe. (laughs) Can I do one more quick catch? Oh, yeah. This is one of my favorite quick catches because... You see it a lot throughout Grey's Anatomy, um, and you get to see it right in this first episode, which is the improper technique during resuscitation. So <laughs> I forgot. I forgot to talk about that one. I have it. I just. I think it's so funny every time. <laughs> so Meredith comes in, and her patient is seizing, and her patient starts coding or it goes into cardiac arrest or is in asystole which is when your heart is not beating or you're flatlining or anything like that that you've heard before and they start doing CPR they start resuscitating her and then you know somebody comes in with the paddles to shock her and something you see in a lot of medical tv shows or anytime you see this in a show or a movie is you put the paddles on and you say clear and then the person gets shocked mm-hmm. and the reason that you say clear is to say Everybody's hands are off the patient. Nothing is touching the patient that shouldn't be. We are clear to shock this patient. Exactly. So you don't say clear if you're not clear. And Mm. in this scene, Meredith comes in and Meredith says clear. And there are still like 
four hands on the patient. Oh my gosh, and everything. her oxygen mask is still on, which is actually, I think this might be a lesser known thing, but that is such a dangerous thing to do mm-hmm. because oxygen is very flammable. And so exactly. if you add electricity to oxygen, that's a way to start a fire or to yeah. burn someone. And so it's very important when you're doing CPR. So you do chest compressions, you're like giving oxygen through the mask. And then if you start shocking... You oxygen take everything mask needs to be off. <laughs> off and far away yeah. before you shock the patient. That's a way to cause an injury. Mm-hmm. And hands on the patient are a way to injure the staff who is trying to save their life. Exactly. So- that was a great catch. I completely forgot about that one, but something that you do see a lot. And I feel like a lot of medical dramas, actually, but yeah. definitely in Grey's Anatomy. And like you said, right in this first episode, you see it over and over again. All right. So let's get into our first medical topic of the episode. So for each of these podcast episodes, we're actually going to be going over one to two medical topics that a patient will present to the hospital with in the actual Grey's Anatomy episode. And so we had kind of touched on it earlier, but Meredith does have a patient that comes in with seizures of unknown origin. So our first topic that we're going to be talking about is going to be seizures. So just to define a seizure, it's a transient episode of altered behavior of sensorium caused by excessive and hypersynchronous discharge of neurons, which basically means that there are hyperexcited cells in the brain and electrical activity that's not supposed to be there. So one thing that we look for in patients who have a seizure is if it's a one-time episode or if it's part of some other disorder, like epilepsy. And epilepsy is a brain disorder that's characterized by occurrence of at least one seizure and then a predisposition to generate more seizures afterwards. There's lots of fancy rules for what dictates what epilepsy truly is and how you get diagnosed with it, but it's kind of nuanced and we're not really going to talk about it in this episode as much. Yeah, but something that a neurologist told me that I feel like a lot of people have said is everyone gets one free seizure. Like everybody's allowed to have, everybody's it's allowed true. to have one seizure without ringing alarm bells. Like they will probably never have a seizure again. Once you've exactly. had two seizures, now we're like, okay, do you have a seizure disorder? Is there something else major that we need to look at that is causing this seizure? Yeah, definitely. That was a good point to bring up. Thank you. So I think one of the cool things that happened in this episode is when the patient came in, Burke was sounding all these orders saying, oh, get this, get that. And so he said the shotgun workup, which is basically like rainbow lab is what we call them in the hospital. It's like literally all the tests that you can kind of think of. And then to get an MRI and a, and a CT. And for clarification, non-con CT means non-contrast. So something that a lot of times for brain scans, especially if you're worried about something like a brain bleed, you want to make sure that you do not have contrast because contrast lights up white and so does blood. And mm-hmm. so that can cause confusion if you were to get a contrast CT. And I mean, they don't really know what brought this girl in, like why she's having seizures. And so it's of unknown origin. So from there, we kind of have to start from nil and building blocks and say, okay, what are all the possibilities of seizures that this girl could be presenting with? And so Anna, reach back into your brain to first year med school. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Do you remember the mnemonic that we use to remember the differential diagnosis, all the different Ooh. diagnoses that you could think of for a seizure? Is this one vitamins? It is vitamins. Gold oh, star yes. to you. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> and so vitamins is a really easy way to remember kind of the main causes of seizures. And so we'll kind of go through them point by point and then spending more time on the diagnosis that she had, which we'll get to in a minute. So 
the first letter in vitamins, V, stands for vascular. So this could be stroke or like an aneurysm, so bursting of a blood vessel. When you think of the eye in vitamins, we think of infection. So obviously there are lots and lots and lots of causes, but usually we're thinking about a brain infection or a systemic or body infection that can actually lead to brain infection. The T in vitamins, we normally think of trauma. So think of these as concussions. You have bleeding in your brain. There's a foreign object in your brain things that shouldn't be there. (laughs) I feel like that's probably the one that we see most commonly, at least in like a Mm -hmm. medical drama like this. I feel like Mm -hmm. they were like, she didn't fall. She didn't hit her head. Like, like, what's happening? Why is she having a seizure? But it is just one of the causes. (laughs) Yeah, literally one of the many, many, many causes. (laughs) The next one is AVM or arteriovenous malformation. And these are basically an aberrant or wrong connection between arteries and veins. Well, and AVMs often end up forming what we also know as an aneurysm so like a collection of blood like a little bubble where the vessel is stretched out blood is collecting Mm -hmm. and so this is why avms can be kind of dangerous or cause seizures because they are forming this aneurysm that can either compress a structure in the brain or kind of rupture and then Mm -hmm. cause bleeding into the brain yeah which is not good No. All right. So the M in vitamins stands for metabolic or toxic. And so you can think about these kind of as things that shouldn't be in your body. So alcohol, drugs, even withdrawal from drugs or alcohol are really big causes. Electrolyte disturbances. So like having low sodium in your blood, having low blood sugar, high blood sugar. I think a really important cause of seizures that is next on our list is the eye is idiopathic, which basically means we don't know what the cause is. So these are just seizures of unknown origin. They, from my research, account for up to 75% of all cases of seizures. And so normally these are first time seizures that happen once and then never happen again. So those are 75% of all causes. So I think it's just important to touch on. All right, the second to last letter in vitamins is neoplasm, which are tumors or malignancies. And this is a really fascinating one because it's not the tumor itself that is causing the seizures. It's actually the effect that it has on the surrounding brain that causes the seizures. Basically, the tumor is just kind of pushing brain out of the way and it's causing local electrical disturbances and a whole bunch of nonsense that it shouldn't be. And so they're usually treated with standard cancer treatment and can usually get under control with that and then a regimen of some kind of anti-seizure medication. A lot of times there are even brain tumors that are technically benign tumors. Like they're not cancer. They're technically not going to kill you because they're cancer. But even though the tumor itself isn't doing anything dangerous because it's pushing on your brain, it still is dangerous, even Mm -hmm. if it's not going to grow anymore. And so like that's a time that a neurosurgeon like Derek Shepard can... Mm. Come in and take that right out and you're good to go. (laughs) Something intervenes. All right. And the last letter in vitamins is S. Anna, do you know what this one stands for? Oh, I think S is syndromes. And there are actually a couple different syndromes that can cause seizures. So the main syndrome I want to talk about, and it's actually super fascinating, is called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures or PNES. Basically, these are really fascinating uh, psychological syndromes that resemble seizures. They have symptoms and signs that look a lot like it, but the abnormal electrical activity that you see in seizures isn't present in these patients. Instead, they're usually a physical reaction to an underlying psychological distress. So it's super fascinating to see a patient with this. It's interesting because there are certain features that you look for in these patients. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, in a seizure that is a neurogenic seizure, it is coming from your brain, it is 
diagnosed on an EEG, electroencephalogram, where you can see the waves are seizure-like. If you were to do an EEG on a normal conscious person, you would see what looks like randomness. Mm -hmm. During a seizure, all of the brain waves basically are going in the same direction. They're like synchronized, and that should never happen unless you're having a seizure. Something that is common in... PNES patients is you would see like unresponsiveness with their like eyes squeezed shut versus like somebody having a seizure might still have their eyes open. Um, You also might see like rapid side to side head movements um, or like kind of thrusting of the pelvis or like changing Mm -hmm. patterns of movement. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all great telltale signs. So in terms of a workup and diagnosis of a seizure disorder, like we had talked about earlier, it's kind of those rainbow labs, that CT, that MRI, all the imaging that you kind of need to go along with the diagnosis. And then if possible, an EEG or an electrocephalogram, because that kind of is like a gold star um, on how you get the diagnosis. In terms of what this patient was suffering from in the show, as you all know, Dr. Shepard kind of tasked all the interns with research projects saying, you need to figure out what's making this girl have seizures. So they all headed to the library to discover this newfound cause of seizures. And the answer that Christina and Meredith actually came up with was that it was most likely a ruptured aneurysm that was predisposed by an AVM or an arterial venous malformation. And so in this patient, since she's such a young age, most likely in her case, it was probably a congenital AV malformation, which means that she was born with it. And then again, she did fall down doing her gymnastics routine two weeks ago even a minor fall can rupture an aneurysm like that so okay and I thought that this was literally so absurd also this is like a really obvious part of our seizure workup Mm -hmm. and so the fact that Derek is just like no and like doesn't even get an MRI well his whole thing is there's a one in a million chance that this is what it is. Like, let's find out if Katie's one in a million but he's just that's just wrong because ready I did the math Let's hear it. I I looked it up. So generally, what we believe is that a lot of times people have congenital AVMs without even knowing that they have them. But we know that 0.1% of the population has an AVM. And then within that population, there's a 3% annual hemorrhage risk. So in fact, there is not a 1 million chance. There is more like a 1 in 33,000 chance that this is what is happening. (laughs) Can we have um, like a little, we need a little noise for when you calculate things. Oh, we do. Okay. I'm like, like I'm thinking like green light, like ching, ching, like correct. <laughs> ding. So Dr. Shepard, you heard it here first. Anna did the math and it is in fact not one in a million chance. Derek, you're wrong. Get you it together. <laughs> so as we know, Meredith and Christina do eventually convince Derek that they need to do work up for this ruptured aneurysm which they find with an MRA scan, which is a magnetic resonance angiogram. So if you may have heard of an MRI, and an MRA just looks more specifically at the blood vessels in the mm-hmm. brain. So that was good. In terms yes, of other, I'd say so. <laughs> in terms of other parts of seizure treatment, the most important thing when you're having someone who's actively seizing is to make sure their airway is secure so that they can breathe correctly make sure that uh, they're protected so like they're on the floor so that they don't fall off of anything in terms of medications to give you're actually in the hospital setting would be like a benzodiazepine or something like that to help with stopping the seizure yeah so like when she first arrives at the hospital they give her diazepam and then later when she was in status epilepticus which is defined as a state of continuous or frequent seizures with failure to return to a baseline level of alertness between seizures and this goes on for at least 5 minutes or greater. Mm-hmm. 
So during that scene when she is seizing, Meredith does a good job after her first line agent doesn't work and gives phenobarbital, which is a type of drug that can slow down the activity in the brain to try to stop the seizure. Mm -hmm, Exactly. But as you can imagine, it's a very stressful and high tension situation when you're in charge of taking care of a patient who is actively seizing like this. Right. Well, and a lot of their diagnostic workup was also good. Those rule out a lot of the things that we talked about in vitamins, like infection. We kind of can rule out trauma, which, of course, kind of becomes a factor. I don't know. That that two weeks ago, that rhythmic gymnastics trip and fall, you never know. Okay, I do. I just want you to throw in really quickly my favorite quote in this episode. I think either Meredith or Christina says, she competes in beauty pageants, and Derek goes, I know, but we have to save her life anyway. Competes in beauty pageants. I know that, but we have to save her life anyway. I know. Poor girl. All she wants to do is get her seizures figured out. They're just making fun of her for being in beauty pageants. On that note, we are going to take a quick break. In all of our episodes, when we come back from the break, we are going to give you a little fun fact before we get back into the show. So be sure to tune back in in a minute. Enjoying the podcast? We want to hear from you. Visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us questions about anything medicine in Grey's Anatomy. You can also follow our socials, stay up to date on the latest Myth vs. Med events, and join our email list from our website or Linktree at linktr.ee slash mythvsmedpod. You can also help support this podcast along with medical and scientific research by making a donation. Back to the show. All right, welcome back. So like Anna promised, before our break, we are going to be talking about a fun fact of this episode. Um, This episode talks a lot about the different positions that people hold in the hospital, such as residents, interns, attendings. And so we thought it would be a good idea to kind of go over the structure of the hierarchy in the hospital. So Anna, do you want to talk a little bit about it? Absolutely. So going from top to bottom, in terms of most experience of all of the doctors in the hospital, generally the most experienced doctor is the attending physician. And this is somebody who has completed all of their training. They are the big boss in charge. A step below them is you'll often have a fellow. A fellow has completed their residency and they are often doing research to subspecialize into a more specific field. So like, In the case of surgery, you might do a residency in surgery and then do a fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery, which is probably what Dr. Burke did in Grey's Anatomy. And then below that, you have residents, Mm -hmm. which means they've graduated from medical school, they have their degree, they are a doctor, but they're still a doctor in training. And there's kind of three levels. So like Meredith in this episode is an intern, and intern is just the word we use for a first-year resident. Mm -hmm. So then there are residents who are just kind of general residents after you're an intern. And then finally, there are some residents who end up doing a chief year, which means that you are you stay for residency for an extra year and you are in charge of all of the other residents. And um, sometimes it's not even staying an extra year. Sometimes they just assign like residents as chief residents for their last year. Yeah, you're overseeing the other residents. You're a little bit more in charge and you're like kind of learning what it'll be like to be an attending. Exactly. Um, so that it's what Bailey is in this at this point in the show. Yeah. And then below that, you have us, which are the medical students. the most important but, people. The medical students. I know. Students. How could they forget us? I don't really think they have medical students in grades, do they? I don't know. I don't, I don't think we see one for at least quite a while. And I can't really 
think of one off the top of my head. So maybe they don't even introduce medical students, which is crazy because as most of our teams say, we're just an integral part of the team. So Oh, obviously. Who knows? Who knows? What would they do without us? Th- that's a great question. <laughs> but yeah, so that was kind of a rundown on how the hospital system works in a nutshell. And of course, we can't forget to mention like the nurses and the PAs and the NPs, like literally everyone else that makes the hospital run. Yeah, there are so many important roles in the healthcare system, which is also why I thought it was funny that you see something like Meredith taking a patient to CT. Like- exactly. <laughs> But on that note, should we get into our second topic? What is our second topic today, Anna? So our second topic is going to be post-operative fever. And this is something in surgery that is, like, honestly, probably one of the, like, most talked about and one of the first things that you learn in surgery. Definitely. Because it's just such a common problem. Mm -hmm. Like, it is very common for a patient to have a fever after surgery. Yeah. And sometimes it is something that needs treatment and something that we worry about. Sometimes it's not. I would say in most cases, it's not something of major concern, Mm -hmm. but something that you need to monitor. Um, Seriously, at least. Well, yes, you should always mm-hmm. take it seriously. You should always do the workup, which we see on this Dr. episode. Dr. Alex <laughs> fails to do. He really does. He's, he's really, he's not at his best at this point in the show. We don't love it and for him. This is this is when there's like this woman with chest pain or like a cough or fever. And it's not even that. She just has a fever, right? And he just kind yeah. of chalks it up to being pneumonia. Yeah. So I was going to say, and pneumonia is certainly a cause of post-op fever and we do see plenty of pneumonia but it's certainly not the only one definitely and in this episode we eventually see dr weber really show up alex and not only dr weber dr meredith gray also well, alex yes up. well for sure but dr weber goes ahead and says excuse me can somebody tell me the five w's of post-op fever Classic. hey olivia can you tell me the five W's of post-op fever. <laughs> All right. Five W's of post-op fever. So first one that I think of is wind, water, wound, walking, and wonder drug. Yes. There you go. Oh, gold five star. Out of five. You might as well be Meredith Grey. Five All out of right, five. There we go. <laughs> Excellent. Um, All right, so we'll go through these real quick. So our first W is wind. And wind is where Alex was saying that this could be pneumonia. So wind is talking about the air coming in and out of your lungs. And something that can happen after you have surgery is you're taking sedative drugs, you're tired, you're sleeping more than usual, you're in bed more than usual, and you're not giving your lungs a chance to do their job as much as they usually do. So what can happen is parts of your lungs called alveoli, which are where the gases are exchanged in and out of your body, including oxygen, which is obviously very important. Um, These structures can start to collapse a little bit because you're not using them enough and you're not allowing them to open up enough. And when this happens, that is what is called atelectasis. And then further, it makes you more prone to an infection of your lungs, which is pneumonia. So this is kind of what Alex thought was going on. This is something that you usually see three to five days after surgery. It is certainly something that you want to be concerned about. However, in the case of this patient who was not responding to the antibiotics that Alex gave, we probably want to be thinking about something else. Of course. So the next W is water. 
And water is referring to the water that comes out of your body. So when you pee. So generally, this is referring to a urinary tract infection. This also can happen like three to five days after surgery. They're more common, especially with patients who have a catheter in or needed to be catheterized for surgery. So the first thing that you want to do is always going to be to look at the catheter if you're worried Mm -hmm. that a patient might have a UTI looking for cloudy urine, blood in the urine, etc. In this patient, I think we also, given that they were on what was probably pretty broad-spectrum antibiotics. And broad-spectrum just means that it targets lots of different types of bacteria. Thanks for pointing that out. The third W is wound. So this is a little bit more of an obvious one, but when you have surgery, you often have a surgical wound that is going to need to heal. And one of the most deadly complications that we worry about is a wound infection. Mm-hmm. So you can get kind of a surface level infection, just like what we would call a cellulitis, it's an infection of the skin around the wound. Mm-hmm. For something like that, we might be able to just give antibiotics and treat more conservatively. However, there is concern, depending on what the surgery is, for a more severe infection. For example, it is possible for the infection to spread to the bone. That leads to something called osteomyelitis or a bone infection, which can be a surgical emergency. Additionally, if the patient has abdominal surgery, and I don't know that we know exactly what surgery this patient had, but something that you worry about with abdominal surgery, especially as well as cardiac surgeries, is dehiscence of the wound. So this is when the underlying fascia, which is the tissue underneath the skin, starts to come apart. So you sutured it up and now it's it's breaking back apart and this is a surgical emergency if this happens no if this happens the patient needs to go right back to the or and it just opens your body up to more infection so yes we just want to close them back up as soon as possible yes i'm gonna skip our fourth w because as we know this does end up being the diagnosis in this patient but our fifth w is wonder drugs olivia can you name some drugs that are considered wonder drugs Oh, gosh. I think one of the first things I think of is like penicillin or any kind of psyllins. <laughs> yeah. Penicillin, cephalosporins are mm-hmm. antibiotics, both that frequently can cause fevers. Um, and if a patient does have a fever post-op and is on one of these drugs, the first thing you should do is take them off the drug. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll help you see if that's the problem. A whole host of drugs can cause a fever. So it's just important right. to be mindful of what you're using. <laughs> so last but not least, as this was our end diagnosis, the fourth W is walking. And what this refers to is the fact that after surgery, you're not walking very much. You're not as active as you normally are. And when you're not walking a lot, a really big risk that you are then at is a blood clot. And these blood clots most commonly form in your veins, oftentimes in your extremities, usually a thigh. But then these clots can also break off and go to other parts of your body. So in this case, what we were worried about was a pulmonary embolism. So basically, they get a blood clot, it breaks off and goes to your lung. And needless to say, a blood clot in your lung is a very dangerous complication. You worry a lot about this person's ability to breathe and circulate oxygen throughout their body. So Olivia, what do you know about the diagnosis and the treatment of a pulmonary embolism? Gosh, well, I know there are a whole host of algorithms and things that you can use, but I think when the likelihood that it is a pulmonary embolism is high, you're really worried about this patient decompensating and not doing well. And so the first thing that you 
probably want to do is give medication. But before you give medication, if you're kind of worried that it's not a pulmonary embolism, you would get a CT or a fancy CT, which is called a spiral CT, which looks really, really well at the lungs and making sure that they're clear and that there's no blood clots in them. Is there another test? There's a scan that you can do, right? Yes, there is. There is another type of imaging that you can do that is called a VQ scan. This stands for ventilation perfusion scan. Don't ask me why Q stands for perfusion because it makes no sense. I just looked it up. Q is quality of perfusion. There we go. So you can get a VQ scan. It's a way of looking at how the lung is working. Is the issue caused by not breathing enough or is the issue caused by an issue with the oxygen exchange? Yeah. And then otherwise, you are totally right. If you are very concerned that this is a pulmonary embolism, the first thing that you want to do is give heparin and oxygen. So oxygen is just to help make sure that they have enough oxygen in their body. And then you give heparin, which is a type of blood thinner that will make sure to prevent the formation of any other clots. Mm-hmm. And then the last step in this, assuming that we are we do indeed diagnose the pulmonary embolism, is that we are going to get a surgical consult for an IVC filter. Tell us what an IVC filter is, Olivia. All right. IVC filter is an inferior vena cava filter, which is this big blood vessel that returns a lot of the blood from your body to the heart. And so... In theory, it catches any blood clots that are coming from your extremities before they actually get to the heart and lungs. And so they usually put them in people that have pulmonary embolisms, especially if they have contraindications or they can't take blood thinners. This is something that they use a lot. It's an IVC filter. It's like a little mesh screen, kind of. So to summarize the workup that you're going to want to do for a post-op fever, one of the first things that you're going to do is taking a thorough history and doing a physical exam. So this is where when we think about all of our five W's, you want to look at like, does this patient have shortness of breath? Do they have urinary symptoms? How has their mobility been? What medications are they taking? Mm -hmm. Which is especially important with the wonder drugs. You're going to do a physical exam. You want to listen to their lungs. You want to look at their wound. You want to look at their extremities, see if there's any sign of like a blood clot in their legs. And then from there, we can get all of our labs and imaging. So primarily, I would say the first image we would want to get is a chest x-ray. Would you agree with that, Olivia? Yeah, I think so. It's so high yield and it's really low cost and low effort. And I think it's one of the main things that we kind of do as a first line diagnostic step. See, and it's interesting because Alex is like, it's been multiple days and he's been giving antibiotics and is just assuming that this is pneumonia. And the fact that it's not improving, he's like, no, I don't need a chest (laughs) x-ray. Well, I'm just like, did he ever get one? I don't know. I don't know. It is weird. Look, I, I... think that there's probably an acceptable time if you are very suspicious for pneumonia like you generally do start antibiotics before you get the imaging you just want to get them on antibiotics as soon as possible but you still get the imaging yeah if he thinks that there's pneumonia he should confirm that there's pneumonia exactly um so you want that chest x-ray and you also want to get a blood count and see do they have a high white blood count which is a really strong indication of an infection you definitely want to get electrolytes you definitely want to get a urine analysis which will tell you if they have a UTI. Um, You want to get blood cultures. If you're worried about a severe infection, you definitely want to get cultures. Um, And then a final lab that we can talk briefly about. If you are worried about an issue with blood clotting, um, a really good test you can get is called a D-dimer. This test is not particularly specific. You can have an elevated D-dimer for a lot of different causes, 
But if you do have a blood clot, you will almost certainly have an elevated D-dimer. So it's just a good thing to kind of help confirm your diagnosis. Yeah. Good first step before you do other imaging or diagnostic steps if you need more confirmation. Awesome. That was super helpful, Anna. And I think it was a good overview of how Alex was wrong. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So that concludes our topic reviews for the episode. To end this episode of the podcast, I want to talk about our favorite part of the episode or major takeaways that we had from doing it. Yeah, that's a great plan. Well, okay. There's two things that I really loved in this episode. One being a little bit more serious than the other, but just kind of things that I really related to in this episode. The first one is... On a lighter note, just how funny it is to see the interns being so awkward trying to get the attention of people when they don't know how to do things. Mm Because I feel like this is me all the time. Oh, yeah. Like, there's a point where Izzy – oh, it's when Izzy doesn't know how to put in a central line – And Izzy is just, like, standing awkwardly at the nurse's station for several seconds not saying anything and just just waits until the nurse goes, what do you need? And I'm like, that's so real. It's like you just walk up and you're just kind of hovering. like, hello, I need help. Somebody come help me. I don't really want to interrupt you, but I need your help. Exactly. (laughs) Or, like, the same thing Christina, like, is trying to get Bailey from the OR and Bailey opens the door and Christina just stands there and she's like, what? And I'm like, Uh the number of times that this has happened to me. Very relatable. I think one of my favorite parts of the episode is actually the small talk that Meredith and Christina do while they're working. They're like sitting in the library trying to form this idea of why this girl is having seizures. And then they're just gossiping at the same time, just completely intermixed. Every couple minutes, they just sprinkle in some small talk and say, oh, Derek. Oh, this. Oh, oh, back to seizures. Oh, but what about this? And so I think it's the dream team. It's it's dream team. And it's also so relatable to what. I feel like I do in the hospital because you have to find time for yourself and being a human. And I feel like I do this a lot where I'm working. I'll be typing on the computer and then I'll just be talking to my friend next to me or like I'll be typing on the computer and doing all these things. So I think it was just really funny to see. Mm -hmm. Important question. Between the two of us, who is Meredith and who is Christina? Oh, gosh. I feel like we need multiple episodes to, to get that going. And I feel like our listeners need to voice their opinion too oh that's interesting maybe, okay. we'll, maybe we'll have a poll going <laughs> yeah okay after this first initial episode we will put out a poll and i want to know between olivia and i from this one episode or if you know us who is meredith and who's christina there or are we someone else you can or are we really someone else are we an oddball who knows <laughs> can i be george i love him okay i was gonna say one of the things that really got me in this episode was from a few different interns making comments about just how difficult everything ended up being and also just the imposter syndrome in medicine oh my gosh yes i was gonna say george at one point just looks at meredith and is like we're gonna survive this right we're gonna survive this right mm-hmm. i was just like Oh, felt I, that in your like, soul. I got it. Yeah, you, you really do. And just same with Meredith at the beginning of the episode. She is talking and she's like, my mother was one of the greats. I'm just screwed. Uh-huh. And I was like, I'm like, yeah, in fairness, she did go out and get drunk and party before her first day of residency. <laughs> so she might have been a little screwed. But also everybody feels like that at some point. Everybody's yeah. like, there are all these great people around me and I just can't keep up. Yeah, I mean, I totally feel that. And it's funny that you say that because I think the biggest takeaway from this episode that I wanted to touch on is very similar is the second guessing that they have of their choice in the medical field. George goes, I would be a great postal worker. Like, Yes. The fact that he's thinking about that rather than medicine, I feel like we're all so excited about medicine and then we get into it. And it's 
it is really hard and it is really rewarding and you kind of have these thoughts swimming through your head could I have done something else type of thing I mean we have friends we both have friends who are the same age as us they have real jobs and money and life that's not in the hospital and yeah it's just (laughs) it's just interesting to see that they portrayed it in the first episode because I think it's super important to touch on and we'll probably be talking about it more Oh, for sure. And I would say I literally had a conversation yesterday in our hospital cafeteria with some of my friends about how, like, why did we do this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but at the same time, we talked about that we do it because we love it oh, and, yeah. like, couldn't see ourselves doing anything else. And at the end of this episode, after the neurosurgery with Derek, Meredith gets all emotional and is like, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this. This is such a high. Mm-hmm. And it's true. You have these moments in medicine that you're like, this is oh right this is why I do this this. why yeah you definitely have those days where you get beaten down and feel kind of hopeless but then you have those days where you take care of one patient or you see a certain type of patient or you have an interaction that completely lights up your day and reminds you of why you're doing this absolutely and I think that's a great note to end on what do you think it really is I love that yes well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We are so excited that you have decided to listen to our first episode, and we can't wait to see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We hope you leave knowing more than you did before about what is myth and what is medicine. If you're curious about where we're getting our information, you can check out our sources in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform and share it with friends. Don't forget to visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us a question, follow our socials, and subscribe to our email list or make a donation. We appreciate your support and we hope you continue to follow along with us on this journey.